0: Welcome to Punchboard Paradise, a board gaming podcast coming to you from the heartland of America in Omaha, Nebraska, where we discuss the games we play, how we rank them, and board game topics that affect our hobby. In episode two, the Punchboarders talk about some games we've been playing lately, discuss what makes a great game, and finally, give a full review of Heaven and Ale. Hi there, I'm Clef.
1: Hi, I'm Richie.
0: Hey, I'm Chad. Oh, guys, episode two. Yep, we we've we've made it. We did <laughs> to episode <two>. just barely. <laughs> yeah.
2: Did you guys watch? Anyway, did you so watch the Oscars on Sunday?
1: I didn't. I didn't
0: I catch watch... it, but
1: I saw that a fish, some fish movie did well. <laughs> that
2: was like one of the only ones I saw actually, which <laughs> is sad.
0: Movie. The Shape of Water, is that what that
2: was
0: called? Yeah. Was that any good?
2: I thought, uh, well, it won for Best Cinematography. I I do have to say that the cinematography in it was amazing. It was very beautiful. So it definitely deserved it for that. I'm not sure Best Picture, but again, I haven't seen most of the other stuff. I tell you what, though, I sure do love me some Frances McDormand, and I'm glad she won because I think she is a force to be reckoned with as an actress. So I can't wait to see that movie. That uh, pun, the Three Billboards movie is kind of right right up my alley so
0: mm. i think the only one that I, I noticed that gary oldman won for best actor uh for darkest hour for his portrayal of uh, winston churchill that's the only movie i think i saw that had anything to do with the oscars and he was oh my god amazing in that movie yeah that's what i've heard oh my goodness just absolutely great i
2: think it won for makeup too
0: did it mm-hmm. i mean I'm a big history buff, and so I and like World War II is probably like one of my main areas that I really like. So I know a lot about Winston Churchill and have watched a lot of documentaries and stuff. You literally, I mean, I would have swore to God it was Winston Churchill that was on the screen. He, he did such a good.
1: Yeah, I have a two-year-old and a so. eight-month-year-old, so I've watched trolls like. <laughs> like the eighth time so that's right i always feel like i have the animated category under control
2: i was sitting there with my fingers crossed no boss baby no boss baby
0: (laughs) i did i did notice that the uh the worst movie was won by the emoji movie so i don't know if uh, that totally (laughs) deserved it i
2: never saw it but anytime you have a poop emoji uh, yeah that's that's yeah you're done Deserves yeah. to be
0: the yeah, course <laughs> that's for sure. Well, um.
2: speaking of uh, Winston Churchill, have you ever played the Churchill game? Because I've heard Joel Eddie talk about it, and I, I'm really curious about it. But
0: no, what's the Churchill game? The, the uh,
2: GMT game, right? Yes, yep, you got it. Yeah, I haven't played thre- it, but I've not played. It's a three player it. only game, I think. So, huh. but I've heard a lot of interesting things about it. Someday we'll, we'll have to to seek that out and play it. I think.
0: Interesting. I don't know if anybody noticed this, but the. Uh, Batman Gotham City Chronicle game on Kickstarter right now. I think it still has like 20 some odd plus days to go already at $2.6 million. I heard about that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of right. like uh, Conan, right?
0: I, I think just so, Batman. in the Batman theme. So they think that it'll, uh, I don't know what Conan ended up uh, taking in, but it's unbelievable how much money right now Kickstarter games are taking in that these Even small things are getting $100,000. I mean, it's just huge. $2.6 million? What
2: that really means to me, though, is that that's a whole bunch of FOMO going on. Because what I've heard is, and FOMO, of course, we're talking about fear of missing out, which a lot of us in this hobby get quite frequently. But I think that I've heard that that is only being released on Kickstarter with all this exclusive plastic content. And that's the only time you're ever going to get it. And so people are worried that if it's an amazing game, they'll never get it. And they're gambling on it. Not to say that it isn't, but I think that's why so many people have have put like, their money in it.
0: Because it's an exclusive game that's going to be for Kickstarter. Kind of like, I mean, like Seventh Continent is only coming out on Kickstarter and uh, Gloomhaven. Right. I mean, it kind of has a retail release, but basically, I mean, it really just came out on Kickstarter those games are gonna make more money than say a game that everybody knows eventually will get real just into regular retail.
2: Sure. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but still, I mean, if you I think and I'm not positive on this and I could be totally wrong, but I thought somebody said the other day that board gaming is the number one category on Kickstarter right now.
2: I had heard like, that.
0: Everything. Uh, that yeah that it's by far the number one well i don't want to say by far but it's the number one category uh for things that people money wise or i don't know if it's actual things that are on there but yeah that it's really huge so one of these days we'll have to talk about kickstarter and what we think about it and everything sounds good all right uh anybody got anything good in the uh in the mail here recently
2: well yeah i uh i got probably the same thing you want to talk about but i also got uh castell which i'm excited to get played and i'm excited to uh, play the fields of Arl expansion so yeah that looked really good yeah I'm, I'm i'm super excited about the tea and trade i don't know how it's going to play at three players I, I don't know what to think of that but i'm telling you it came with a history book of about 40 pages i'm serious i'm reading it to finn at dinner tonight he's like wow i didn't know those dairy sheep could bring in that much for the economy <laughs> like, i
0: know
1: it was ridiculous. It was and it's ridiculous it's just history like there's no rules it's, in there or anything no right.
2: there are absolutely no rules in this 40 page booklet about the history of east frisia and all the tea trade it shows Uwe's great great grandfather's cottage it's so funny it is so funny
0: Wow. Yeah. Actually, I'm like that makes me more interested in the game now because I want to like read about the history of all play.
2: Well, Finn can already tell you a lot about it. So.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, what about you? Well, uh, well, uh, obviously what you guys both have uh at least you came in the mail or are about to come in the mail. I got the Marco Polo expansion.
1: Yeah, mine's coming tomorrow.
0: And oh boy. I've already Read all the rules. I'm like, Jones into play. It's, oh, there's some really cool things. There's a whole new board called the City of Venice, and I haven't really read uh, completely on how that plays, but it also has some companions that are kind of like mini powers that you can get throughout the course of the game for each round, which I think is really cool. And then it came with some new player powers. One of the player powers, which I just think is really cool, you after everybody's picked their player power, this one says you now get five player powers of the ones that are remaining. And then you get to choose each round, which one of those player powers you want to put into play and get to use it just for that one round, you know, and then discard it after that. But I just think that's really cool. Cause I'm like, oh, now I'm really playing with six different player powers. It's just one. So
2: well, oh, the amount of AP like sounds endless with that. I mean, every round you're just going, oh, my gosh,
0: what do I choose? Oh, do I want to use this one? I don't know. I don't want to use that one. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I am. Uh, Marco Polo, definitely one of my favorites. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, put this into, uh, put, to get, a, get a game in. Of this do you know Richie,
1: if the uh, Favors or whatever that little mini expansion is compatible with the newest expansion? I can't tell. I would think so. But did they put anything special with the gifts?
0: No, in fact, I just realized that I don't think I read anything in there about the gifts. Uh, you know, quite a few times it references the original rules, but it never said anything about the gifts. Um, I'll, I, you know, I think I've I've read the rule book maybe just for a few minutes this evening uh, after dinner, so I'll have to look a little bit more to see if the gifts will work along with it.
2: Richie, did you get anything, or is anything coming along with your Marco Polo
1: expansion? I got a few things in there. I've got uh, the, the Stoffer Dynasty. Oh, I picked right. that up on clearance at Miniature Market. And I've only seen like a couple things. It's one of those games that just kind of it came out, didn't really make a big splash, and then just disappeared. But it looks interesting. I well, watched like a little bit of a uh, run through on it, but um, it looks like a good medium weight euro.
0: There. I was going to say, it certainly has a name that sounds Euro-y. So yeah. I'm and
1: kidding. a cover. The cover looks very yeah, euro Yeah, for Euro-y. All
0: right. There. The guy
1: <laughs> holding his hand out into the air on a horse. It's just, uh, oh, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Standard Euro. There are people <laughs> that speak pretty highly of it, too. So I think
2: uh, Patrick from B- Blue Peg, Pink Peg, and John from John's mm. Games seem to like that game, too. So there's some hope okay. for it. So that'll yeah. be fun once you get it. Well, how about we uh, how about we head into what we've been playing lately? How's that sound, guys? Works for me.
0: I think that sounds like a good idea. All right.
2: Yeah. Richie, why don't you kick us off?
1: What did you have to talk about from the last couple of weeks? Sure. So I got in another play of uh, Ponzi Scheme from TMG. And in Ponzi Scheme, uh, we are all fraudulent investors trying to get uh, Ponzi's you know, hence the name, Uh, trying to run our own Ponzi scheme, basically. And in the game, the whole goal of the game is to not go bankrupt first and to end the game with the most money uh, once you once someone goes bankrupt. So the way that a round works is uh, you first start off by taking a funding card and an investor marker. And each round, there's going to be nine funding cards available. Every time you go to pick a card, there's going to be nine that you can pick from. And on there, they'll have a value that you're going to get. So like in this case, you know, $71. And then it will also have a number that you'll have to put on your little, you have this little time wheel in front of you. And every round, the time wheel will turn either one or two spaces, just depending on if the market crashes. And every time you turn that time wheel, it's going to point to some of the previous funding cards that you've taken earlier in a turn. And then you have to pay all of that interest right then and there. So just to give you an example, as far as what the cards look like. So, so you get $71 from the general supply. And then on turn three, you're going to have to pay back $126. And so all the cards are kind of like that. You're usually paying, you know, anywhere from, you know, 25 to 60% interest on all these uh, loans. So it is, um, it's interesting after, uh, it's one of those games kind of like modern art where it's hard to figure out the value of the different investor tokens that are out there. And then also trying to keep yourself afloat <laughs> and not be the first person to uh, go bankrupt. And then at the end of the game, uh, once you, you know, once someone's gone out, you'll, it's basically set collection for the investor token. So the more that you have, the more points that you'll score. And then any money that you have left over will also score points. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting is that each turn you also have the opportunity to trade with the other players for their investor tokens and or their industry tokens. And there's this little wallet that comes with the game. And the way that you do a trade is that you secretly put some money in it and you offer. Let's say I'm going to offer Chad, uh, you know, whatever money I put into the envelope, but I want his red uh, in- industry token. I hand him the envelope. He looks at it, and then either he will take the money out and give me his industry token or he'll put in the exact same amount of money that I gave him and hand it back to me and then I have to sell him one of my sell him the same industry token that I was going for. So, have you guys have either one of you played this at all? Nope. I have not played it.
2: I have to I have to admit that when you first started talking about it, I was surprised. I mean, I, with the name, I thought it was going to have Henry Winkler and be about happy days. But then I realized it wasn't Ponzi <laughs> scheme. It was, it was Ponzi scheme. Right. So, but wh- the way you're talking
1: about oh it boy. though, the way you're talking about, it
2: sounds like you're treading water and just k- keep acquiring bricks. I mean, that is exactly
1: no what matter it what like. Yeah. If the game went on forever, everyone's going to go bankrupt no matter what, because there's right. just no way to keep up with it. And, and I didn't say this as far as like when that time wheel keeps turning, There's it's possible for the stock market to crash if there's too many of these bear cards out on the funding board. And when that happens, the stock market goes uh, two spaces. So everything that was in those two spaces is going to get lumped into one um, row. And then you're going to have to pay that all. Uh, And you never get money again from those cards, but you always have to pay every time you come back around to that card, that interest rate. So yeah, you're going to be treading water until someone goes out.
0: Now, Is there normally an average number of rounds before somebody goes bankrupt or is that completely random each game too?
1: that? It depends on the players because I've I've played twice now. The first time we played the game lasted probably an hour. And that's because one guy, (laughs) he just got in. I mean, he got way got in way too deep and he was trying to do these ridiculous trades to try to get money and they just weren't working for him. And then it got back to him and he owed like 300, uh, like 350 bucks or something like that. And he, he had like $80 left. So, yeah, it just depends on the players because if they value, um, you know, those different industry tokens wrong or if they take on way more than they can handle, the game can or the game can end prematurely.
0: Mm, OK. Seems like one I would. Like to give a try to. I mean, uh,
1: yeah, I think both of you guys would like, especially, like I said, it, it kind of has that modern art feel as far as the, um, you know, that the bidding or not bidding, but your, you know, the, that trade part of it kind of has the modern art feel yeah. and just taking the okay. funny board. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting. So, we'll have to give it a try. Sounds
0: good. Yeah, it I, I very much sounds good. Okay. Right.
1: So, Clef, what have you been playing?
0: Well, I got a Kickstarter game in. I got in Grim Forest. Now, Grim Forest is a story about the three little pigs and basically the object in the game is to be the first one to build three houses Uh, you have a straw house a wood house and a brick house now you don't have to build all three of the houses you could build two brick houses and a straw house or whatever just basically the first person to build three houses is the winner the way the game is, the, the kind of the game mechanism is you. everybody starts off with three cards in their hand. One's a pig that's going to go to the straw, one's a pig that will go to the forest, or, or excuse me, the fields, I guess I should say, in the forest, and then one that goes to the, the brickyard. If you're the only, and then you, you choose this card in secret, everybody then reveals it. If you're the only person to go to a certain area, you get all the goods that are there. So if you're the only person, for instance, that goes to the forest, you get all the wood. But if two people or more choose the same area, then you divide up those goods. So it's kind of a cat and mouse type of game where, uh, you know, that person's going to go there. Maybe they'll go there. And you're trying to guess to try to get the most goods. Now, with these goods, that's how you're building those houses. The other part of the game is there's these fable cards. And these fable cards are all different fables throughout all of the, uh, you know, different uh, stories throughout uh, uh, fairy tales, I guess you'd say. You know, you might have the gingerbread houses. You might have something like, uh, you know, Pinocchio or Peter Pan or any of these different things. And then these fable cards all do different things. Like they'll say, uh, if someone is already, you know, at the same location as you, you can get an extra good. Or it might say, go put a monster, like a dragon or a wolf or one of these different uh, fairy tale characters, you put them in a certain area, and then anybody who went to that area doesn't get any of the goods. Basically, the wolf eats them or well, whatever. He takes them away, so then they don't get any of those goods. So then you have these you know, these different fable cards. And um, basically, that's the game. I mean, literally, you're playing these fable cards with your cards, you're collecting goods, and you're just building up these uh, these, these buildings to, uh, these houses to, to try to win the game. So I'll say this, I bought this because I, I, I shouldn't say I, I, I kickstarted it because I thought my little, little girl would enjoy it and maybe find it neat because of the theme. Well, let's just say she started playing the first game. And I think within three turns, she was like, yeah, dad, I'm bored. Can I get out of here? So that didn't work. <laughs> So then I finished off with my older daughter and she liked it. She thought it was a pretty cool game. She, she enjoyed it. I got a second play in with the, with my two boys and my daughter and you know, we, we finished it. It was an okay play. I really thought once I got done with the game, it was not meaty enough for me. It's just way too simplistic There's just not a lot going on. You're kind of at the mercy of whatever fable card you draw and you play. And then it's just, you know, getting lucky on who can be the fastest to build their houses. There's not a lot of gameplay in this. Now, granted, that may be exactly what they were looking for. They weren't looking for anything too complicated. But for me, it's kind of a miss. It was just not enough meat on the bones. I will say this. Talk about components and artwork oh my god off the charts beautiful i mean the houses to the to the dragon figure and the, the three little pigs that you have for component uh what am i trying to say here the uh the miniatures i mean amazing but gameplay yeah unfortunately this this one's gonna be uh probably hitting the cell pile for me do
1: you think it's uh, meant for even right. younger than uh, your daughter
0: I think, honestly, I think on the box, I think it says ages like 12 and up, which I was like really surprised about. I mean, I certainly feel like a 10 year old or younger could even, you know, if they understand games, could easily play it. But I I don't know. I've heard a lot of more gamers and stuff talking about, oh, this is an amazing game. And they, you know, they're talking more probably about the components.
1: Yeah, but say, I've seen a lot I about have, the components in the art on it.
2: Yeah, me too. It's uh, supposed to be really beautiful as far as the production from everything I've heard. It could be it's it's for the same audience that likes uh, Mice and Mystics. Have you ever played that? No. I haven't played okay. it, but yeah,
1: I know what you're talking about.
2: I mean, just the same subset that I'm saying, not, not necessarily the gameplay, but that just get into sort of role playing and the anthropomorphic animal thing and liking that aesthetic and... And those sort of Could things be. i don't know though because i haven't yeah. played it but i would yeah. certainly might. give it a try with finn and see if he yeah it. i was
0: about to say yeah. it might be worth a play with finn just to see what you guys think um, but yeah i just not not enough meat on the bones for any type of a game there for me so that was uh, grim forest so chad uh, what have you got
2: uh, i have keeper so that's one we all played just recently. But uh, Keeper is a worker placement game from the Key series by Richard Breeze. He's got Key Dumb and Key Flower and Key Cathedral and all those Key games. And this one I call a kinder gentler Key Flower because there are no auctions, as there are in Key Flower, which can get a little bit cutthroat and mean I guess if that's the word that you'd like to put on it I just say competitive but you're placing workers out on a communal board with communal action spaces on it in the center or on buildings that you've bought on your own player board or that you've bought and built on your own player board and the tension really comes from the ability to place a special meeple that you have out on one of those boards and claim that board for the end of the round. So once you put that out, you claim all the meeples that have been placed or will be placed throughout the round on that board. Usually there are two are a same number of boards as players, basically. So if there are two players, you're going to have two of those boards out there. If there are three, you'll have three, that sort of thing and then you claim these boards at the end and you get all the meeples that are on it. So if a board has a lot of popular spaces and you claim it, you're gonna have more meeples at the end, which allows you to take more actions, of course. But at the same time, when you cannot take actions anymore because you've run out of meeples, you get to lay some of those meeples down to take a second action. The other interesting thing with the worker placement in this game is when you go to a worker placement spot, you want to try to match the color of the meeple to the space. So certain spaces like the clay space are orange outlined. If you have an orange meeple and place it there, then you can ask if somebody wants to join you. And if they have an orange meeple, it doubles your production, basically. Then that person can join you and you both get a bigger number of actions by going there together and having the same colored meeple. So those are some of the things that make it interesting you're basically having the four seasons, just like you do in Keyflower, to build up your board and score lots of points. And the big other draw with this game is the gimmick of the folding board. So this this board folds basically infinite ways back and forth, sort of like one of those things that they call the cootie catcher in, in school, where the girls would get those things or boys to get those things and fold them back and forth and ask each other those questions and things like that. And I always
0: wanted that game. Did
2: you? Yeah. Well, that's good. (laughs) You caught lots of cooties then. But uh, this board is amazing to just sort of play with. My son picked it up and just kept folding it back and forth. It was almost like a fidget or something like that for him. But they're really neat in the way that they do that. Now, we kind of all figured out that there aren't infinite possibilities with it. There are only a couple choices because you have to match the season that you're going into with the board, so there really aren't as many decisions as you might think. But the actual folding of the board is kind of just a neat little gimmick that is still fun to me. All in all, I consider this to be more like Caverna than Agricola, in which it's a little bit nicer. You can kind of pick which direction you want to go into you can you can do animal husbandry you can really go for building a lot of buildings that take certain resources you can go heavy into the fairs where you display animals and rocks (laughs) and things like that and try to get points so you have different directions you can go and none of it feels as tight as key flower where you really can get locked out you may have a little bit of anxiety when somebody takes a lot of meeples from your from the board that you've been placing on, but other than that, it's a little bit gentler game, like I said. So I would play it with some gamers, and then there are other gamers that I'd play it with that, I guess I should say, that, that aren't heavy gamers. So this is one that I'd play with my wife. For example, there's tons of Anna Meeples in the game, so that would be an attractor for her because she can just build up her little farm and have fun with that. I don't mean that to sound, you know, denigrating or anything like that. It's it's still to me it's a very fun game, but it's a different kind of game to play with different different uh, players or different tastes, I guess.
0: Right, and and even if you don't get a board that has a lot of meeples on it, it has that mechanic where you get to start laying your meeples down. So sometimes even having more meeples is not an advantage.
2: Right, you. right. You can still take double those actions by laying those meeples down after you've run out. That's right. Like,
0: yeah. I would definitely agree with you. It's a lot kinder of a game than Keyflower, which has a lot of thought process AP where you're trying to figure out what colored meeple to put on what thing. And this is just basically kind of putting it out there and, and kind of having fun doing what you want to do.
1: Richie, what did you think of it? Because I know you like Caverna, so... Well, I mean, with this one, in the end, I just I would rather play Keyflower. It wasn't like that different. Like the... Mm-hmm. The thing I was most excited for was the boards, like being able to switch those around. But, you know, like we discovered it, I mean, basically almost
0: differences.
1: Right. Yeah. You can't like I was going after animals heavy. So like it would have been interesting if I would have been able to make one of those boards, like just all animals where, you know, it's better for me. And, you know, since you guys weren't going that route
0: and worse for us. Yeah.
1: Right. But I mean, basically every board almost looked about the same. Yeah. Each round, so uh, yeah, I would just probably stick to keyflower. I, I think it was a good game, but just overall, just not not good enough. Sure.
0: Well, and I, and I, uh, well, I got the two plays of it in, and I I really thought there was two buildings that were in the middle part that were almost must builds. The one that kind of gives you I can't remember what their names were, but it was like a pavement maybe and a sewer. I can't remember exactly, but basically they just gave you points for just buildings on your board, and you really didn't have to do much except for just be building these buildings, and they were just huge multipliers.
1: Was that the one that gave you the points for adjacent tiles or whatever, Yeah. And diagonal? Yeah, okay.
0: yeah. But like your farming, it they didn't help you because you had to build the right, yeah, the buildings in the middle, so they it, it didn't help you at all. But I had played it earlier, so I was like, okay, I know I'm going to go for this, you know, this the uh, way that I'm going to play it, and that just seemed to just give you a lot of points. So I I don't know if that's a, you have to kind of do that way to have a chance to win the game, which could be kind of a little bit of a unfortunate part of that game. If that's the case.
2: Yeah. I haven't had, I haven't had enough plays to know that for sure. Sometimes that stuff takes more plays, but all in all uh, I think at this point I'll still keep it and play it, but we'll see. We'll see how it shakes out.
0: So you're going to keep keeper.
2: (laughs) Yes, I will keep
1: keeper. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, Richie, save us. What,
1: are, what did you play? <laughs> uh, well, The uh, the Bloody Inn uh, was another one. And it's about uh, basically you, you are farmers. So kind of ties into Keeper a little bit. Except in The Bloody Inn, it's set in the 1800s. And in I think it's in France, I believe. But the goal of the game is to be the wealthiest amongst your other family members, the other players at the table. And the way that you do that is that you guys are running this in and you have guests that come through and you murder those guests and take the money out of their pockets, basically.
0: Whoa, 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 Murder <laughs>
1: those guests? Uh, kill, murder, whatever you want to say. <laughs> <It's>,
0: <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, in the way that you do that, it's a card game. Uh, it's beautiful art. that That's basically what got me in the door uh, was the art and the theme is interesting. So... You don't usually see that on card games, but the way that a round works is that you have two actions per round and the there's I think five different actions. So you can bribe guests and that all that means is that you're taking guests. There's a little central board that uh, you bring the guest into and each of you owns a little room in that inn that guests will go into. So if you bribe guests, you put them into your hand and now they work for you and they'll help you do the other actions. Uh, which the next action that you can do is kill guests. So each guest has a different aptitude that they are, or they have a different skill that they have an aptitude for. uh, And the skill, and those are basically suits essentially. So if you have a a guest that has the aptitude to kill, instead of when you go to kill a guest, you have to discard a number of cards equal to their rank. And the ranks go from uh, zero to three, maybe four. But so you're discarding those cards out of your hand. Obviously you want to keep cards in your hand because that's how you're doing these different actions. And if they have that aptitude, like in this case to kill, instead of having to discard that card, you get to keep it in your hand. So uh, you kill a guest. And then of course, once you kill a guest, uh, the card goes in front of you on the dead side. It's a little coffin and has their point value, uh, their money value. And then you, you have the option or you have the other action that you can take is you can bury uh, the guests. And then the last action that you can do, well, not the last action, but uh, the next main action that you can do is build an annex where um, you will take these cards or you'll take one of the guests and they all have like little building symbols on them and you'll build it in front of you. And now that's a, like a different building on your property that they uh, live in and that they keep, track of for you essentially. And that's also where you'll bury the corpses under these different annexes that you're building. And then the last act, and once you, once you bury the corpses, that's when you get the money from their pocket. So whatever value there is, and it it usually goes anywhere from like $8 up to like 30 for the really, uh higher rank cards. So the last thing that you could do is you can pass and then launder money. So the really interesting about interesting thing about this game is that the way that you keep track of your money is on that central board. It looks just like a little score track. It only goes up to 40, $40 or francs. So once you hit 40, like if you were to bury anybody and you would go over 40, you would just lose out on that money. So you have to plan and take the time to, uh, to launder that money so that you can turn that, you can basically cash in all the points that are on the board and turn those into, uh, there's little uh, francs, little chits that they give you, or checks, that's what they call them in the game, that you'll cash out basically and put to the side. So, and you have to time it out well, because the way that you, at the end of the round, you also have to pay any accomplices that you still have in your hand. They'll take a wage, basically, and that's going to come from your, the money, the fluid money that you have on the board, you can't take that from the checks. So it's a it's an interesting game. It's super tight because you only have those two actions each turn. And so a lot of times you want to, you know, kill someone and bury them. But there but you also need to build an annex. And I didn't say this, but at the end of each round, there's a police investigation. So if there are any police that are still left alive in the rooms uh, and you have unburied corpses in front of you, then you basically you have to bribe the cop. And then pay the local gravedigger to bury them and you'll lose money for that. So it's like I said, it's it's a super tight game. I could definitely see where the theme may turn off some people, but um it's it's done you know, all in tongue in cheek in the game. And the uh, like I said, the art is just beautiful in this game. That's really what drew me in. And then uh, overall I would say uh, you know, it's a pretty interesting gameplay. So
0: it it sounds interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I would think you would like it, Clef, so.
0: I, I mean, the theme to me, I mean, whatever. I mean, if I got to kill some people to score some points, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the game. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> I just want that to Glad be we cleared that up. in the game.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: how many plays of that have you had, Richie?
1: I've had quite a few. Um, I've played it, you know, it plays uh, one to four or, yeah, one to four. And, I mean, I've probably played it. 10 or 11 times wow oh and then so i just a pretty quick game then I yeah think. it's it does there's a short game and a long game i would just recommend playing the long game because it's really not that long and then i also just got the carnies expansion uh which i haven't played with yet so uh and that just adds some special powers and there's different modules that get added more cards get added to the deck so
2: interesting yeah, we'll i think to give it a try I think Chris from The Secret Cabal really likes this game, but most of the people I've heard talk about it have talked about low replayability, so I'd kind of stayed away from it. But I'd love to give it a try. I love multi-use cards, so.
1: Yeah, with the multi-use cards, that'd be right up your alley, Chad. Right. All right, so that's The Bloody Inn. Uh, Clef, what what else have you been playing?
0: Well, next game I'm going to talk about Uh, I usually will talk about Euro type of games, but this one I'm going to talk about is a party game. And this one's called Crosstalk. I actually heard Tom Vassell talking about this on on a podcast and mentioned this game, and it sounded kind of interesting to me. And I'm always kind of looking for new type of party games that my wife would enjoy. And so I picked this one up from Amazon, and it is basically the premise of this game is it's kind of like password. If you remember the old game Password where you would say a word and try to get the other person to kind of say uh, what, what, whatever the main word is, you give them a word to try to get them to that word. But the trick in this game is instead of you giving a clue to your team for them to guess, you're actually giving it to the opposite team and then they get to guess. So let me start off here with exactly the, with the, how this was played. You're going to have a, a card that has some uh, different words on it. You roll a dice to pick, a, pick one of the numbers or one of the words on this card. And you'll have two different teams. And you can have teams of, you know, two all the way up to teams of a million if you really wanted to. Because you just divide into two equal teams. And whoever is like the clue givers on each team will look at whatever word it is. And let's say it's uh, row, row your boat, okay? So then each of you has that same word that they're going to give, trying to get their teams to guess. You're going to write down one key word that only your team gets to see. Now, this is not out loud. This is just written down. So for instance, you could write down the word song and you could then hand that to your team. And so then they see song And then the other team also is going to write something down, but you don't know what they wrote down. Then whoever one of the people is going to start off, and so let's say that I started off, I would be giving a clue, but I would be giving it, like I said, to the other team. So I want to give a good enough clue that my team knows what I'm talking about when I'm talking about song, but maybe not too good of a clue that it will let the other team know. So let's say I might say canoe. And then the other team, you know, I don't know what their clue is. I'm hoping that canoe is not good enough to get them to where that clue is. But then the next, if they guess wrong, then the other team is then going to have to get a clue. And I'm hoping that my team with my clue that I've written down and then my other clue, that will get them to, okay, what's a song with a canoe? And then, you know, somehow, boom, that will get them to row, row your boat. So that's kind of how the game is played. And uh, basically it's, it's best one to five. Um I've gotten to play this game I think 3 or 4 times now and it's just been a huge hit with everybody I've played it with. Everybody has really enjoyed it. Um I even got to play it with a uh a, a fellow uh podcaster out there Ryan from across the board and me and him were uh waiting for some other games to be played and so we sat down and played this with a couple of uh girls that were at a party we were at and we uh just smoked them we beat them five to nothing we just absolutely crushed them and it was just like one of those things where we were just hooping and hollering and just having a great time and uh it's just yeah it was just lots of fun and uh I, I just recommend if you like party games any like you know like time's up or or wits and wages any of those kind of just kind of fun party kind of games this is a really really fun game That uh, has has a lot of intrigue. I mean, you know, like it's not just straightforward. It's it's a little bit of skill, but yet just it's fun and and everybody can have an enjoyable time. So obviously, I know both of you guys got to play this with me. Uh, Any thoughts on it?
1: It was frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say it is a hard game because the clues can be anywhere from I think I had currently iron and then Chad had some ridiculously long book title.
0: Uh, none of us knew. That, yeah, none of us. A yeah, tale never, of two cities, so. you guys. It was a tale of
1: two cities. And then...
0: Yeah, we'd already forgotten.
1: But what I like about this game is that, I mean, it, it provides those moments where, like, like when Chad was the clue giver, like, he would give us a clue, and, you know, we're, we're just looking at each other like, I, I mean, I guess I no this idea. is supposed to help us, but it is not helping us, and you're just kind of looking at him, and then he's frustrated, like he was saying, but... I mean, it provides, I mean, it gave me a laugh, so. <laughs> he,
0: he kept trying to say literature, and we were saying things like Declaration of Independence, Bill of, and Bill of Rights, yep. and he's like, he's like, those aren't literature. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry, Chad. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so yeah, um, that's a good party game. Check it out. Uh, crosstalk. All right, Chad, what's your last one? My
2: last game to talk about is called The Expanse. So maybe that sounds familiar to some people out there. It is based on the very popular IP right now that's on, I believe, the sci-fi channel. I'm watching it through Amazon Prime video right now. But great hard sci-fi IP about these people in the future and Mars and mining on the asteroid belt and all that kind of stuff. Really, really great series fun. If you like sci-fi, you should totally check it out. I played this game with a friend of ours recently who is very much into the IP started watching the show and then read half of the books already that the show is based on. And he was so excited. He was pulling it off the shelf and going, Oh my gosh, we have to play this. And he really enjoyed it because it did get into the IP. In fact, he was worried that he was spoiling some of it for himself by playing it. But he still had a great time. Uh, it is a card-driven game, much like 1960, The Making of a President, which I talked about in the last episode. Also, this has been referred to by Joel Eddy from drive Through Review as Tammany Hall in Space. So I kind of agree with that. And I'm sure that makes Clef's ears perk up and get really excited. But, <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Can't wait. <laughs> but uh, the game is, like I said, a card driven game. Cards have action points with uh, events on them as well. <laughs> And it's the same kind of mechanism where you draw a card. You can play the card for its action points. Or if your faction that you're controlling has the has its name on the event as well, it can be used by you just to, to use that event for certain things out on the board. Because most of this, again, like a lot of these card-driven games, it is an area control game where you're have uh, ships or tokens of influence on earth or on Mars or on planets in the asteroid belt. And you're playing these cards out to use them for their action points or use them for the events. Now you also are on the initiative table. So what happens when you do not play a card for its event, but you play it for the action points, it goes around the table. And if that faction happens to be on the card that is yours next in initiation order, you can choose to use it for the initiation event. However, if you use it, then your initiation token goes all the way to the bottom. So you won't get chosen first to choose somebody else's event next time. And it goes around the table like that. And that can be really interesting. And Clef You might find this next bit interesting because you did not like in 1960 when you couldn't have strategic use of cards. But in this one, you can buy a card off of a track each round and you can keep it instead of play it that round. You have to pay an extra an extra action point to do it, but you can kind of hold it to the side and then choose to play it later, either during a future round or during a scoring round when it goes around Ooh. and you score all the sectors. So there's some... I like that thought. Yeah, there's some strategic play there that's kind of fun. And every time there's a scoring round in this game, you gain an extra special ability that each faction has. So each faction has almost a sort of tech tree in three different parts where you have these different abilities that you gain that make you different, which is kind of fun and kind of like the powers in Tammany hall, but these are already decided for you. I feel like some of the powers are easier to play as a beginner than others. Just like, I don't know, for example, Clef, we were talking a few months ago about Marco Polo and how the, the, the player power with the don't have to roll dice can pick what your role is every time. is the easiest to play for a beginner, but not necessarily the best power in the game. There are a bunch of powers in these, in these games that are easier to play up front when you haven't played the game much and seem probably more powerful at the time, but are not necessarily. It's just that you have to learn the game a little bit better and you'll be able to do some of these powers easier. But I found it to be really fun uh we had a great time enjoying the ip of course and then like i said sort of stealing and messing with each other but like most card driven games this is one that merits more and more play so that you can memorize stuff from the deck and know what people are trying to pull and then somebody else is saving a card and right when you're gonna go do something they slap it on you and you're just kind of messing with each other back and forth and it Within the IP, I think it could be great fun. I have to say that although I love the IP, I think I enjoy Tammany Hall as a theme better. But I I really enjoyed this game. It was it was fun. And Richie, I think you definitely like it. So
1: that's a yeah, that uh, description of Tammany Hall in space. I'm in. So
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Is there a way for someone to say, hey, let's do this together and then backstab you in this game like in Tammany Hall?
2: I suppose there could be you. I mean, there's always table talk and I suppose you could, but you're so busy. There are very specific things that you want to get out of scoring. So you don't have time to kind of try to screw with another player too much. It's, it does have that sort of thing where you have to strategically, strategically look at where you're placed around the table and see who's going to undo, undo your stuff a lot of times. But
1: You
0: But not that backstabbing way that Richie did (laughs) me in Tammany Hall. Hey, that's the game. Yeah, maybe I'd play it. You know what? Okay. That's politics.
2: I mean if Richie's playing, if Richie's playing, there's a possibility for that in Uno too, but I'm just saying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, too funny. Yeah.
1: So so anyway, that is that's the expanse. All right. And we're ready to go into our monthly board game topic. And this month, uh, the Punch Boarders are going to discuss what makes a great game. So how do we want to do this, guys? we just want to go through uh, just kind of a kind of a checklist thing as far as what we like and what we look for in different games?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I would start off by saying I think everybody, this is going to be a different list. I mean, no one person, two people are going to be the same exact on why, what makes a great game. So I just think, you know, maybe kind of talk about what makes a great game for us and then maybe uh, just some conversation on on why that is.
1: All right, sounds good. So uh, let's uh, start off with, uh, how about uh, gameplay or fun gameplay? Like how important that is. I know for me, I don't necessarily need a game to be like laugh out loud, funny, but um, I, I just need it to be interesting gameplay. So like, you know, my favorite game is uh, Lorenzo um, Il Magnifico. So, and for me in that game, just the the puzzle of you know putting your engine together is what I would classify as fun. I don't know like yeah, how I, you guys feel about that.
0: Now that would be one area I would I would totally agree with you on. Um, that is what makes for me a great game is a very strong, interesting mechanism that keeps me engaged in the game um i don't need to have like i don't this this is me and i mean i don't know if i'm jumping around here but the theme doesn't have to be something that like comes out in a game when i play it if it does that doesn't bother me but i don't need to be like oh i'm trading in the mediterranean and i feel like i'm a trade. no i'm just playing the mechanic and that's what that puzzle then is what makes a great game.
2: I think most of the time I enjoy a good puzzle. That's, that's my preference. Certainly. So, uh, gameplay is very important. I do enjoy those times when you can mess around with a theme and make the game more interesting from that perspective as well. I like modern art In particular, as an example, because I like how we all try to sell the art at a real auction and we have to name the paintings and get really into it. And we use the squeaky gavels when we sell the paintings. I just think that makes it much more interesting and sort of unique to our play group. So that's where certainly kind of playing into the theme is is fun for me. Obviously, the games that we all play together are the same kind of games. So we all enjoy a strong puzzle generally eurocentric so i think that we're pretty much in agreement in this area
0: so so how important is theme like richie i mean how important is theme for you in a game
1: uh not at all really like if the puzzle is good i really don't care about the theme sometimes like the bloody end like the theme can pull me in like just me looking at the box but like if the, if the game was crap in bloody end, then I just, you know, I wouldn't play it again. I may, you know, keep it around for a little bit just because of the art, but you know, it, you you could replace the theme with anything and it, it would not bother me as long as I like so, the game. So,
0: so really that that's irrelevant. So Chad, right. for you, how, how important is that?
1: Well, I'd say first
2: and foremost, the game is always the most important thing. Like I think it's hard with a good game to separate mechanisms and theme if you can make those two match, that's optimum. But if you're going to make me choose, yeah, I want to play something that's interesting by virtue of its mechanisms. Obviously something like viticulture, which isn't heavy, still feels like a very thematic game as well. And that's a really nice marriage of mechanisms and theme, especially if you're playing with that Tuscany expansion and you have lots of great decisions to make, but also feels like you're slowly building your winery and, Doing different things to make that happen.
0: Right, right. So, the theme for us, at least sounds like for the three of us, it's not important if it's there. It's nice, but we're never going to play a bad game because we like the theme. Would you guys both agree with that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't know that anybody plays a game that's bad just because of the theme. I think maybe for some people, the theme makes enough of a difference that it
1: makes it good for them. How about? Yeah. Right. Like I would say like, Chad, do you think, um, what's that poop game? (laughs) Um, is it really (laughs) called that with the imps? No. Oh shoot. Uh, dungeon pet. Yeah. Dungeon pet. So yeah, I don't, I don't care about that theme and I don't necessarily like that game all that much, but like, do you, I, do you think, Cause it almost seems like that theme kind of resonated with you more and maybe made that game more enjoyable for you. That's a good question. Uh,
2: I, I like both things. I like feeling really clever by trying to get the cards to match up. I mean that with the wants that your pet needs. And I like trying to plan ahead when you can see what those people are going to want for pets and trying to slowly get that. I, I like those kinds of things as well. I But of course I like telling the story. Uh, right. But I, when I played it with you guys, I didn't do that much of that. I mean, we just kind of were puzzling it out and stuff. And I still, I still enjoyed it. Like I said, I, I, I really, I know you guys don't care for it, but I really enjoy that game, and not just because of the theme. By far, I I like what you're doing in it, and I don't mind that it's really tight too. I know that th- that was one of the things that bothered you that you can get a cage and and then have no have no pet for a whole first round, and that can mess with you too. But but regardless, I don't I don't know the theme helps it, but I still think it's a a good game regardless, in my opinion. Now a good a a good game to talk about as far as that goes is. You know, would either of you still play Betrayal at House on the Hill? So Um <laughs> doesn't sound um, like it doesn't sound <laughs> like
1: either of you would do that.
0: I wouldn't play that game, period. I, I mean, I, I have played that game, but it, I, I'm just bored with it when I play yeah, it. That it doesn't do anything for me.
1: Like Mansions of Madness, second edition, like that would give me my like haunted house feeling. And I mean, you could even have a traitor in Mansions of Madness if they go insane. So. Right. Um, yeah, I probably never need to play Betrayal. And then I know that they rethemed that to like Boulder or I don't know. What Baldur's Gate. It, Baldur's Gate. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that I just have no interest just because of the I mean, the gameplay is just kind of broken. I mean, the you know, that traitor, like when you have to separate a lot of times those stories are just broken. So,
2: yeah, they don't always work that well. I I'd still keep the game around because I i like playing it with new gamers i'll be honest that was one of the first games that i played when i played at a meetup when i was getting back into games and at that Mm -hmm. time it was really exciting to me my game tastes have changed a whole lot but i'll still play that with some people that i know like it and their world sort of becomes board games a lot more in in my opinion Mm -hmm. so i still enjoy playing it with with that subset of people
0: well I would agree with you, Chad, that that is a game that when I was kind of first into gaming back you know, a few years ago, I actually thought, oh, this game's kind of fun and entertaining, and my game change has, or game selection for sure has definitely changed since then. And a few weeks ago, I was over at a friend's house, and somebody wanted to play that, and I was like, oh, okay, that seems like what everybody wants to play. And I literally played like two rounds, and I was like, uh, yeah, I can't do this. And somebody <laughs> came in and was like, Oh, I love that game. Oh, you, know, you guys are full. And I was like, nope, you can pop right in here and take over for me and I'm out. <laughs>
2: so Yeah. So I, I I guess I and again, it's not that I can completely recognize the faults. For me, that kind of a game is fun because I like watching new gamers get into it. Cause like I said, I have I play a lot more probably with less experienced gamers than the two of you do. That would be my guess anyway. I don't know for sure. But in that regard, I like watching them sort of get turned on to games more by playing a game like that. Because I have a lot of friends who are into horror. I don't watch a lot of horror movies or anything like that, but that's their thing. So that's what I would say as far as as far as theme goes.
0: Gotcha. Okay. so now let's go. What about components? I mean, we all like nice components, but. Does a game to make a game great does it have to have great components for you
1: it doesn't have to have great components for me but i mean it is a it's a plus and a lot of times if it doesn't have great components but i love the game i'll just replace the components myself so it's something that like like one thing that i hate is wooden dice so any game that has wooden dice in it i'll buy new dice for it I did that for Santa Maria. Um, Marco Polo? I haven't done it in Marco Polo yet just because of all the different colors. (laughs) But I did it for like Grand Austria Hotel. And I'm looking for uh, dice for Lorenzo Il Magnifico. The issue is the size. Because just to get three dice in in those colors at that size, the price is getting a little high up there. But overall if the components are you know that's what a lot of times that draws me in you know really wow. nice components so wooden dice why wouldn't dice why do wooden dice bug you just the feel of it yeah they're too light they don't give you that you know that that just that nice you know feel of you know just good dice in your hand okay gotcha mm. well i will Never say
0: about
1: it.
2: i will say that a game with really nice components makes me play it more often for sure. Hmm. So if I have a game with with nicer components, I'm more likely to pull that off the shelf for several reasons. A, I just said that I like to play with new gamers, and if a game is blinged out, there's a more there's more of a wow factor to a game like that. Also, right. I just I play board games because I enjoy the tactility. That's why I, I know you guys. Well, Clef, you don't, but Richie, you talk all the time about playing it online. And I cannot, mm. I cannot do that. And part of it is I just enjoy, I mean, I even have these apps. I like Terra Mystica and those, and I'll play the apps once in a while, but I can't make myself play them that often because I like holding and touching the pieces and moving them around and that sort of thing. And so when you're talking about better components, it just increases that, that tactile nature, it increases the, you know, the, the,
0: just the enjoyment. yeah,
2: the enjoyment of it.
0: See, I'm probably the lowest on the scale of you three guys, or for the three of us, on components being something that I need. Um, I like components, and if they're nice, that's great. But I'm certainly like, I've never thought about replacing wooden dice in a game. I've never thought about, oh, I need to go get, you know, the Stonemaier, you know, cool component, you know, wheat and logs and all that stuff. If a game has it, it's neat. There is only one exception, and that's coins. I do like to have nice coins. But other than that, whatever the components are that they give me, those are usually good enough for me. And I know that I'm the only one who thinks this, but I legitimately like the regular components in Yokohama as opposed to the deluxified. I know, call me crazy. No,
2: you can see the board better with the chits instead of the little nice houses. However, I think you can also see out on the board when you're counting your pieces of influence a little bit better. Uh, picking those out. I think you can see with the wood on the board if you say every wood piece that I have on this tile makes, you know, counts as part of my influence. You can you can count up your influence a lot easier. However, having the chits flat help you see the board better. So I see what you're saying there, right. yeah. but yeah. but so. I I, I would love you to tell me why coins make a difference versus everything else.
0: Um, Because they're cool. <laughs>
2: yeah. Great answer. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> I'll be here all week. Um, I I don't know. There's something, because I think because with coins, I feel like I'm constantly using them or touching them. And maybe this comes from my poker playing days. I like the being able to just kind of sit there and, shuffle them and kind of play with them and it's nice when you have nice big thick metal coins as opposed to the little you know cardboard chits and i absolutely am a do not like paper money i guess if i if if there was a game or a component paper money is just the worst i i cannot stand paper money even if it's nice paper money uh like in firefly they have the really nice colorful money but still, it's paper. It's still annoying. So I, that, that's why I think I'm
2: sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've yet to find somebody who says, man, I love paper money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I remember back in Monopoly days. Oh, that getting that ooh, money, paper money in your hands. Ooh, yeah,
1: <laughs> I will say in Ponzi scheme, uh, the paper money is nice. And you really couldn't play it with like metal coins because you have to put the money in those envelopes. That's really the only game that I can think of that like I would say you have to have paper money for that particular game just for the mechanism to work.
0: That's, that's true. And, uh, millennium blades,
1: fat stacks.
0: No, yeah, but that's a little bit different because you've, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You've put them in the fat stacks, but, uh, game I recently acquired 1853 an 18 XX game. Uh, you have to do some blind bidding with putting some money in an envelope to start with. So for sure, you would obviously have to use paper money for that, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, I definitely always want to use the coin. Of course, I'm literally looking forward to those uh, poker chips. The brass is coming with the Kickstarter. That I well, I can't wait. Yes, maybe I like components more than I really try to lead on. Sometimes <laughs> that's but right. I will, I will say this, and I and I think I said this to you guys the other day. If I'm ready to play a game, like in Orleans is a great example. I know Richie's version. You know, he's got the nice, deluxified, beautiful version. I don't care if I was at my house and I'm playing the regular boring version or if I'm playing the deluxified version because I still like that game so much. That doesn't matter to me. So, I I mean.
1: no, And I'm in the same boat there because if we're somewhere, because that's like in my top five. So if we're somewhere and someone busts that out on the table, I don't care what version they have.
2: You brought up, by the way, you brought up an interesting thing. I don't mean to take us backwards a little bit, Clef, but you were talking about, you know, and I I think you kind of, I get it. You kind of pride yourself on, I just, you know, I just give me a game. I just want the puzzle, you know, theme doesn't matter. But I will tell you, I've played Firefly. It's not a great game. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's uh, it's a lot of theme and not much of a game.
0: All right, that's my one one example where theme makes that game better. Yeah. Yes, I would By
2: a long shot, I'd say.
0: Not that I think the game is, it's not terrible. It's not a terrible game. It's just not probably my style of game for the most part. It's more of a pick up and deliver and kind of random cards that flip up. And, and quite honestly, more here of late when I've played it, I'm more frustrated with the game than anything. But. I will agree that does have theme that does draw me in, but that's a very, very rare example of a game for me. Sure. Okay. Um, so overall, I guess, you know, I, I don't know, do you guys think you have anything more to talk about? Kind of I think for us as as the punch boarders, we're really good, we're really big on strong mechanics, good gameplay. Theme, if it's there is great, but it's not a huge important thing for us. And components, we certainly like nice components, and there's certain some things we would like to change out. Um, but if a game is good enough, once again, the components are more just extra there. They don't have to be there. Would that pretty much wrap up what we would say is a great game? I'd say that's true. Yeah. Okay, let's get to our review of Heaven and Ale. Heaven and Ale is a two-to-four player game with designed by Michael Kiesling and Andreas Schmidt with art from Christian Foray, you are a brewmaster collecting goods to make your beer or to sell for money. Each player will have a token that they will use to move around a rondel board with different spots around it that will either get you goods, monks, or scoring tokens. When you stop on a spot, you take the token and place it on your player board. If you place goods or monks, you pay the cost on them either when you put them on the selling side or you're going to pay double the costs when you place them on the beer producing side of your board. When you stop, you may no longer go back. You always have to be moving forward. Each player will continue to take turns until each of them makes a complete lap around the rondelle. The other piece you can also pick up while going around along the rondelle is a scoring disc that will activate your goods and your monks. This is how you will produce money and how you also produce your goods. When you produce your goods, you move your goods, tokens, up a track. You also have a brewmaster that moves when activated by monks, and this will help you with in-game scoring. You play a certain number of rounds, depending on how many players. When you finish with a specific number of rounds, then start the in-game scoring. The unique part of this scoring is you're only going to score your lowest good on the track. But you do have an opportunity to reduce the higher goods to increase your lower goods. This depends on where your brewmaster ends up giving you a certain ratio. And it also will give you an in-game multiplier. In the end, the player with the most victory points is the winner. All right, so there's a brief overview of Heaven and Ale. I didn't hit on every single uh, aspect of the game or, or exactly how it's played, but just kind of a brief overview, overview there. So start off with, we are going to just kind of talk about some different parts of it. Starting off, we'll talk the components and artwork. What do you guys think? Uh, components, uh, average, good, bad, terrible.
1: I like the artwork in the game. I think it's uh, just overall. I like that, especially the cover. That kind of like that stained glass uh, look to it. I think it works well with the theme uh, of you guys being, you know, uh, being monks. Um, but overall, I would say like just the after you get past the artwork, the components are kind of average. Okay.
2: Absolutely. I, I was just going to say, I think it's completely average as far as the components go. I do like the middle ages artwork feel, but the rest of it is, yeah, it's, it's a Euro game. It's completely average components.
0: Yeah. I, I would say this is exactly what I would expect from this game. I, I don't need anything more blinged out or fancy. It does exactly what I need it to, to yeah, to get that mechanism of what the game is. The art. Yeah. I couldn't even, I mean, until Richie kind of described the box cover, I kind of even forgot what the box cover was, like, <laughs> so it's kind of forgettable to me. All right. Anything else on components or artwork? <laughs> Seems pretty simple on that game.
1: Yeah, it's pretty straightforward with that game. It's yeah. pretty okay. average.
0: Okay. All right. So, all right. So now let's just talk about the overall gameplay. I mean, how you kind of how you feel or the overall gameplay, the mechanisms. What do you think on that, Richie?
1: I'm a huge Kiesling fan, so I'm a little biased because I just typically I've had such good luck with all of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've had such good luck with the rest of his games that you know I went into this game expecting to like it. And uh, just overall, I'd love the uh, kind of that puzzly nature of it as far as what tiles to take and win. And then I also like the it's kind of that give and take because you want everything on the board, but money is super tight. And then also the other players, you have to I mean, since they can jump as far as head as they want to, you kind of have to anticipate where they're going to go. And it's just kind of nerve wracking when you see someone pick up their pawn and they're about to move it and you're just hoping they don't go to, uh, you know, the space that you're looking at. So,
0: yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's that's my favorite part of the game. It's like, no, do not go there. Yep. I totally agree with that.
2: That's mine as well, because things are so tight. just the movement around the board and that section of the game to me is the most enjoyable that to me is the game. And that's what I really, really enjoy. So,
0: yeah. I mean, teaching it wise, because I think we've all taught it to somebody new. How, how do you feel as teaching? Is it a tough game to teach or a hard game to pick up?
2: I think that to teach it the first time is difficult because the scoring mechanism at the end even if you do an example scoring which i've done with people they really don't quite understand it until they've played their first game i really think nobody understands this game fully until they've played their first game all the <laughs> way through that's just the way it goes i think and so
0: or three or three or four games well, sometimes
2: yeah oh, okay, okay. <laughs> i got it i got it yeah that, you, the, and, and this will be reflected for me but uh, the, i had a hard time and it didn't have so much to do with how the scoring mechanism worked. I just, I'll be honest, the hard thing for me was tile placement. I'd pick up a tile and I I didn't necessarily know where the best place to put it was. If there's a strategy for this game, you know, I started to understand how to place your monks better and just surround them before you trigger them. I started to understand that later on and that maybe not trying to get all the same of a monk because it's really hard to do sometimes and just trying to focus on surrounding them and not trying to surround a shed necessarily as much as just trying to surround a monk almost before you kick it off is more important. But again, like I said, I still don't feel like I have a great handle on the strategies of this game. And I know that's just me, but for me, tile placement was really difficult for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, overall, it's a easy game to teach. I mean, there's a couple of rules like the triggering versus activating a monk that aren't, I mean, I would say they're not clear in the rules. It seems like that's a rule that everyone gets wrong the right. first time they play it or teach it. Right. Uh, but overall, I mean, outside of that, once you figure that out, teaching the game is easy, just playing well uh, is can be difficult.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I've taught this to some what I would consider pretty good gamers. And once again, like you said, teaching it, no problem. You know, yeah, this is how you play, this is how you do, blah, blah, blah. But they just kind of, once they start the game, they're just looking at you like clueless, like, okay, what a, what's the best move? And that's where I think the game, you need a couple of plays of this game before you can kind of understand what the, and I don't even necessarily say that I'm an expert on it. Yeah, I think I have some ideas now of what some good moves are, but it can still be a difficult uh kind of learning experience when you're first learning the game yeah
1: you're going to easily beat a new player if you played before
0: yeah you know because it's you know
1: it's easy to score zero points as one of us could talk about more but um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's a tough game
0: we love you (laughs) chad um i would i would also say that you know starting to understand those sheds which is something i didn't kind of really explain in the overview but if you surround a certain, these, these tiles are hexagons, and when you surround a uh, spot on the board, it will give you these things that they call sheds, which really are just kind of triggers. And they each have different scoring that they kind of give you where you can activate different hexagons. Or there's one that if you're low enough on these numbers, you don't really trigger anything, but you get to move this brewmaster piece, which is honestly is probably the most important piece in the game. You get to move it up like a significant amount compared to normal. Yeah,
1: like six spaces. And
0: that's where you, yeah, six spaces. And boy, you get that Brewmaster up really high on the board, and that's going to help you. Don't you still got to get the move the other things? Because like we just said, I mean, if you take uh, six times zero, it still is zero. So you still got to get the other ones moving. But that's a really important part of the game is getting that uh, that Brewmaster up. And I and I think, at least in my opinion. Any game I play, I make sure that I always get one of those zero sheds so I can move that guy up.
1: Yeah, you never want to end up in that. I think it's like twelve to seventeen range where you're only getting one brewmaster movement and you can only activate two tiles. It, that I mean, that's yeah. the easiest one to hit, just as far as you know the the total number of the tiles around that shed space. Uh, but yeah, you really you really have to plan to try to go lower or go just really high so that you can activate all those tiles. Right.
0: Okay. So what about variability and then replayability? Chad, what do you, what do you think on the the variability of the game?
2: Well, depending on what player count you're going to play at that uh, affects the rounds basically. So you're going to have a much shorter, game with a two player game because you're going to have less chits that you're going to put out on the board. So that can affect the variability. Uh, But you won't, you can easily go through every tile with a few plays that doesn't necessarily matter because the layout of the board can be quite different from game to game. And in this kind of a game, you you're still going to play it a bunch of times. I feel like because this setup can be so different. I, I, would still consider the variability to be about average. I don't think it's anything really high, but it's not also to the detriment of the game. So again, this is where that game falls squarely average for me anyway. How about you guys?
0: Richie, What I I think it's, I like the variability because really where those goods come out and where the different monks come out, that can make a real difference on how far you're jumping up to grab something. And then the variability of how players are jumping up, that can really change the game to me from game to game. Um, I don't know, Richie, what do you think that, or
1: I would say, yeah, I would say just overall, I mean, the, the tiles themselves, I think how they come out when they come out, you know, how much money you have that, that can all vary. Uh, I think the big miss on variability on this, in this game are those barrel, points and i don't we didn't go over in the overview but the same and i mean they're not end game scoring but basically the way that this game works is that you're not scoring uh, those barrel points until the later rounds and it would have been nice to have more than i can't remember how many are out there but just so that you know some don't come out in a game or that you know there's a just a little variance there would have been nice
0: right just just to make it a little bit different from game to game. Right. Yep, I totally agree with you. Um, I also thought that's that's one of the things. There's a spot on the board. I think there's it's two spots on the board. Yeah. And you literally never have to worry about stopping on those spots, almost through the first two thirds of the game. You know, however long, how many rounds you're playing, because you're nobody's done any of those things yet. You don't even have to worry about it. I would have liked to have seen them possibly make that spot, go get a barrel or something else that made it maybe a little more attractive in the early rounds where then it made it where somebody might actually stop there and get something before you if you didn't stop there also to do it or or something on those lines. I I just wish they would have added something.
1: Yes, especially in the, the first round, there's no point for those two spaces. Cause it's impossible to, yeah. to score anything. So uh,
0: I'd almost say the first two rounds, I think it's almost um, yeah the, the things yeah. you have to do. It's just too long. Right now. Well, maybe that's coming in the expansion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, So, but replayability, I, I would say replayability for me is I'd say it's better than average. I, I really feel like every time I played that game, it's, it's been different enough that I still like the experience.
2: Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I could, I could second that. It's, You know, it it plays different each time based on who you're playing with and how the track comes out.
0: Okay. Okay. So what about uniqueness? Do you feel like this game has a uniqueness that is is different from other games?
2: The scoring mechanism is, is unique. I think that's why it takes time for people to understand it. Because when you not only are you getting a multiplier, which happens in a lot of other games, but that variability of move this down to move these up sort of thing is a little bit different. I think at least in games that I know of anyway.
0: Right. I know there's games like, uh, Tigers and Euphrates. Um, I can't think of any others off the top of my head where they have that mechanism where whatever your lowest score is, is what you actually, that's your score. It doesn't matter how high you are on any of the other tracks or anything like that. Um, but the uniqueness I think in this game is the, wherever your lowest is, you can still raise that up by moving your higher one down.
1: Yeah. You see that in a lot of Kinezia games, that lowest one scores is your score. Uh, but yeah, getting that brewmaster up is so important in this game. And because I mean, it can be the difference between, you know, barely scoring anything and, you know, scoring 20. 30 points which can can easily be a winning score.
2: Right. But that kinetia scoring is pretty common though. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um so I say at this point, uh Chad, why don't you start us off? Why don't you give us maybe a little bit of your final thoughts and a rating, but before I guess you give us that, I guess we kind of have to tell everybody what rating we are kind of going by. So we're going to go with a rating scale of 1 to 6, where 1, that is pretty obvious. That is bad game, throw it away, trade it, trash it, burn it, get it rid of it. There's nothing to it. Um, 2 would be I don't like it, but it could be a game maybe others would enjoy. Okay, fairly simple there. Three, that's pretty much an average game. It's not a keeper for our collection, but you know, if somebody said, hey, I like this game, I want to play it, we wouldn't turn down a play of it. Uh, four, game worth owning. I really liked the game. I would like to play some more of it. You know, it's it's worth being in my collection. Five is a great game. Possible... Ten, top 10 of the year you know this could be a game that could be really high up there for you and you'll actively want to have people try to play it you're like hey i like this game let's sit down i want to show you this game and then a six that's like the cream of the crop rare game hall of famer that's like a top contender for uh, you know at least maybe your top 50 of all time if not maybe your top 10 of all time so all right so there it is rating scale one through six Chad, take it away.
2: Okay. Well, my final thoughts on this game, you know that for me, it wasn't as easy to grok probably as uh, the other two, two guys. But uh, I would say I can see the game. I can see the appeal of the game. I love the trip around the board. i love Rondell's anyway. So I really enjoy that part of it. It, It has merits to it, this game. Um, But to me, the scoring, the way that the scoring works, it's interesting and it's different, but it's fairly dry. I don't know how else to put it. It's interesting, but it, it doesn't really do it for me. And besides the two of you, with some of the other people that I played it with, Stephanie and our friend Josh, my wife Stephanie and our friend Josh, that was one of the things that they didn't care for much either from what I understood Um, so I'd give this a three it's an average game for me I probably am not going to keep it around much longer I understand why you guys like it but for me it's just an average game and if we eventually do our beer and wine game day with Vinos and viticulture and brewcrafters I won't be sad if it doesn't get played
0: (laughs) Okay. All right, Richie, what's your final thoughts and ready?
1: All right. So, like I said, I'm biased towards Kiesling. So, it's not going to be a surprise that I like this game. Um, the, and, it, you know, it's a tough game, like we've already said, but it plays quickly. And overall, it gives me that medium weight Euro feel, which I love. And since it plays so quickly, you know you can pump out the plays of this game and get better at it. So I do enjoy um, just the the puzzle of trying to figure out where you put the tiles, when you put them, and you know, like I said, the money is always tight. So it's 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 just a fun puzzle to try to figure out. So overall, for me, it's one of my favorite games of the, of last year. Um, it's probably my second favorite game overall. Uh, so I would give it a five with it, it has the potential for me to get up to that six, maybe over after, you know, a few more plays. If they come out with any type of mini expansion that gives me just more variability as far as the in-game scoring, anything like that, then it, it would probably jump up to a six quickly for me. But overall, five.
0: Wow. OK. OK. All right. Well, I will echo a, a lot of what Richie said. I really like the puzzle of this game of trying to figure out what the best way to put your tiles and where to put them and when to go to the sunny side to get the, you know, the, to collect the money and when to put them on the other side to to get the resources. I love the feeling of when somebody else is moving their meeple of don't put your purse there, don't put your piece there. I just, that is such a great feeling uh, that, that anxiety, that tightness in that game where I just, Don't you know, I'm hoping that they don't take my spot so that I can go get it that I love about it. Um, I will agree. I would like the barrels to have a little bit more variability and possibly something different. Like I said, with those action spaces that are on the barrels to, uh, you know, give you something to go for earlier in the game, even if it's like two bucks or something, which, you know, most games you'd be like, what, two bucks. But in this game, you know, two bucks could be huge just to make something there a little bit more variable. I think would I just would like it just a smidge more in that way. But I'll say overall, I think this is a really solid game. It really hits that medium Euro feel for me. And I like the time I like. It's a fairly quick game. I definitely want to play more of this. And this is one that at this moment is not in my collection. And I definitely am actively looking to get it into my- I. Th- I don't know if I'd quite give it a five. I don't know for sure if it would make my top 10 of the year. Uh, That's a tough one for me. It's definitely on the border between a four and a five. I think at this moment, just because of the non-variability with the barrels and just a few things that I think I'd like better, I'm going to say a four, but it's really, really close to a five. All right. So that was our review of Heaven and Heaven. A-O. So
2: that's a three from me and a five from Richie and a four smack dab in the middle from you, huh, Cloth?
0: Uh Yep. All right, that's right there. So, and I think both uh, Richie said it's close to a six for him, and I'm saying it's a close to a five for me. Is it close to a four? For
2: yeah, me? it was very hard. It was <laughs> it, it was hard. It was hard to. I mean, because like I said, I recognize it's a good game. So it's 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 right on the border there. But I'm going to ultimately say three.
0: So okay. All right. So, uh, well, that's it for us. So, uh, Chad, tell us, tell everybody how they can get in contact with us.
2: Well, first of all, we are on uh, BoardGameGeek.com at our Punchboard Punchboard Paradise Podcast Guild, 3227. And also, we have an email, and you can email us at PunchboardParadise at gmail.com. If you are on Twitter, you can find us at at Punchboarders. You can hit us up on Facebook on our Facebook page Punchboard Paradise, or you can find us on Instagram at at Punchboard Paradise. So come check us out on one of those. We'd be happy to chat with you and talk more about games.
0: Yeah, oh. ask us questions. We we love questions, and uh, definitely that'd be uh, that'd be awesome. So. Okay, well, that's going to be a wrap on this episode. Uh, Join us next time when the Punchboarders draft their top variability player power games. Ooh, that should be fun. All right, thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Good night.
1: Have a good one.